turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. As you turn there, again, just want to echo some things Ben said. We're excited about uh, so many things going on in life for our church. Excited about getting together next Sunday night for our, our evening uh, service. And excited about talking about Blake and, and his position. And one, one of the neat things, it's, it's kind of a ministry in our church that's a little quiet uh, sometimes. We have this, this amazing opportunity to help people prepare for ministry. And we have uh, sent uh, several people uh, to and through uh, seminary to help them prepare for, a, for whatever ministry God has for them. And sometimes, we don't always have the ability to do this, but sometimes we have the ability, as, as you know, with uh, Seth and Phil and uh, Mike and Ben, we're in this situation as well, where we can kind of bring people here as they finish seminary or uh, after, right after seminary and spend some, some time with them to, and uh, have the opportunity to help them develop whatever God calls them to next. And so we're excited about the potential to do that with Blake. We uh, have worked with him for several years now, uh, believe that the desire that God has placed in his heart to, to be a, a, a preaching pastor someday that, that continues to, to look like a, a great opportunity. So we're excited about this phase of his ministry life to, to be with him and have him here if, if God confirms that, that calling through the church. And so looking forward to talking about that. Well, let me, let me give a little bit of an introduction here uh, before we, we look at the text. It was, uh, it was a summer or springtime sometime in, in 1517 when a man named John Tetzel arrived in a German city called Jutterbug. And he arrived there, and as he arrived, there were some people who began to uh, greet him. Some town officials came out and, and approached him and greeted him, and they all walked into the, the city together. And before them was a large cross, kind of preceded them into the, the town, and behind that cross was a man carrying a, a red velvet cushion, and on the cushion was a letter from the Pope himself, and this whole procession came into the town square, and John Tetzel read this letter from the Pope, and then he began to preach. And he told the people to, to think about their loved ones who had died. He said, imagine your grandfather or your great-grandfather or grandmother or father or mother, those whom you love who are now uh, deceased, and imagine their anguish as they are in purgatory, as they, as they suffer the consequences of their sin, John Tetzel preached. He says, now imagine you had the ability to, to hear them. What would they be saying to you? They, they'd be crying out, pleading for you to help them, and you now have the ability to do so. You can purchase for a limited time from the church indulgences for loved ones. You can purchase indulgences for those who have died and are now suffering in purgatory. You can, su- you can purchase indulgences for yourself. You can purchase indulgences for your precious children, for your spouse. And if you purchase these indulgences, you have the ability to have someone's sins completely forgiven. There's a great chasm between God and, and humanity. And now if you purchase this indulgence, you have the ability to to close that chasm, to allow a person to come into fellowship with God and to ease their suffering. And he, he preached this, and people began to, to buy these, these pieces of paper, believing that the church had the ability 
to, to sell God's grace. I wouldn't word it so crudely, but that's, that's essentially what it was, right? In the nearby town of Wittenberg, a young monk named Martin Luther heard about the sale of these indulgences and heard what, what people were believing about how effective they were, and he began to preach against them and teach against them. And on October 31st, 1517, so 499 years ago tomorrow, Martin Luther wrote down 95 statements or theses and and nailed them to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. And these were essentially 95 statements about how a person comes into relationship with, with God. They were arguments against the sale of indulgences, this belief that a person could come into right relationship with God through, through purchasing a piece of paper. Luther and, and many others in the church argued that uh, rightly that a person comes into relationship with God by God's grace alone, through, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And in fact, that day, 499 years ago tomorrow, is really what scholars kind of point to as, as one of the beginning dates of what we call the Reformation. And in the Reformation, there were some truths that were, were reaffirmed. We wouldn't say they were discovered in the Reformation, but there were some truths that were affirmed as we kind of sum up what was happening in the Reformation, we would say that, that, that people were once again affirming what the church has always meant to affirm. That, that Scripture is our, our ultimate authority. Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. And that Scripture teaches us that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. With Scripture, as our ultimate authority, we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And those, those statements that kind of sum up what was happening theologically at the time of the Reformation are what we call the five solas, sola being the Latin word for, for only. So, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola dea gloria. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, glory of God alone. And several years ago, we looked at this idea of, of Scripture alone at this, this time of year. And this morning, I want us to look at, at this, this idea of grace alone. That this, this truth that was affirmed, the Reformation, this biblical truth that rightly tells us that we just sang, that we are saved, that we are brought from, from sin we, and, and, and separation and deadness, we are brought from that into relationship with God. How? By God's grace alone. That's the truth affirmed by Ephesians 2, and a truth that as we look at this passage, I hope you'll see how crucial it is, not just a thousand years ago, over, uh, or uh, 500 years ago, or even uh, we're going to talk about something that happened over a thousand years ago in just a moment, but but how it's relevant even, even this morning to you and to me. So Ephesians chapter 2, and if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read uh, verses 1 through 10 together. It's a very special passage. This passage is actually, actually the first uh, passage I ever preached in a sermon. It's a passage we looked at several years ago here at Bethany Community Church. We're going to look at it again this morning as we think about this idea of 
grace alone. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You may be seated. May God encourage us through that word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace this morning. As we've already sung, we we recognize that it's grace and grace alone that saves us. It's your grace and grace alone which sustains us and sanctifies us, allows us to be obedient. Father, we recognize this morning that, that we are a church in need of your grace. We pray this morning for our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ worshiping this morning all over the world. We think especially of our, our, our friends worshiping in the central Illinois area. We think of our sister churches, Bethany Baptist and Living Hope, and pray for your special grace on, on them. I pray for my, my friend Jason Oligood at Fellowship this morning and pray for grace in, in their church and, and for your uh, glory to be manifest through through the, their ministries as, as they seek you and as you do great things uh, through uh, your people there. We, we pray that your grace would cause people to recognize their sin. We pray that your, your grace would cause us to recognize our sin, that it would cause us and others to repent and, and be drawn to you by your, your grace. We pray for those this morning, as they, they suffer, as they think about the purpose of suffering, let them, let them know you and the power of your grace and be changed and transformed. Lord, you know the needs of our hearts more than we know the needs that are going on in other people's lives, and, and you know the needs that are in our lives even better than we know ourselves. And so you know what grace we need, what circumstances we need to be brought in, so we pray in whatever circumstances we find ourselves this morning that, that we would turn to you, seek you, not on the, the basis of our own worth, but on the basis of your grace, the immeasurable greatness of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. 
the idea of, of grace and the idea of only grace and being saved by only grace is, is a very difficult idea to, to talk about. There's, there's so much here. I was uh, hearing one theologian kind of talk about this, and he was talking about how, you know, even in the sound of music, there's that scene where, where uh, Maria and Captain Von Trapp are, are talking, well, they're singing, they're always singing, they're singing about their great love for each other, and, and that they sing, nothing comes from nothing, remember that, that, that line, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could, so somewhere in my youth or childhood, what? I must have done something good. In other words, right now, what I'm experiencing is, is good, and so therefore, th- there must have been something that I did. It's, it, the idea of just receiving something by grace, by, by God's grace, is hard for us to conceive. And so we think, well, well maybe there was, there was something that I did. Somehow I've deserved this, or, or maybe if I don't deserve it now, maybe there's something I need to do so that I can, can stay in this and deserve it. Nothing comes from nothing is kind of the, the theology that we naturally have for ourselves. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. I must have done something good. This is obviously a huge issue when it comes to the church. And I want to talk a little bit about church history and and tell you the story of of three individuals and their understanding of the separation between God and man. And then I want to bring that into today and hopefully help you see how this is extremely relevant and extremely important for us to understand. The first person I want to tell you about is a man named Augustine. And Augustine was born in the the 4th century, and in 397, Augustine wrote a very famous work called uh, The Confessions. We call it The Confessions of Augustine. And the church at the time rightly understood that, that God is over here. We've talked about this already this morning. God is over here, and there's this, this great chasm that separates us. It's caused by our sin, and, and you and I are, are over here. And Augustine, as, as he was talking about this, this separation between God and us, and he was thinking about it in terms of his own conversion and, and how he came into relationship with God, he was kind of struggling to understand this. And so he, he talked about all the ways in which he had rebelled against God. Sometimes he had rebelled against God actively. He had been engaged in sin that was just 180 degrees uh, running the opposite direction from God. Sometimes he was doing things that he thought would bring him closer to God, and yet they were still, even unconscious, acts of rebellion. And so he wrestles with this. And he goes, what, what happened here? How did I come into relationship with God? And he recognizes the biblical truth that he was brought into relationship with God, not by anything that he had done, but by God's grace alone. That God sovereignly and kindly and because of his love and his mercy, that God came to him and and allowed him to understand his sin and recognize who Jesus was. And and God, by his grace, saved him and brought him into relationship with him. That's, That's his understanding. He writes this in, in 397. This, this book is published in 397, so kind of at the, the end of the 4th century. And there's this prayer that is written in his confessions. He says, basically, God, you demand self-control. Grant what you command, and then command what you will. In other words, Give me the ability by your grace 
to do what it is you command me to do, grant me that ability, and, and then tell me whatever it is you want me to do. Grant what you command, and then command whatever you want. So Augustine understands that in Adam we are sinners. We're sinners by our nature. We're sinners by our choice. There's nothing in ourselves. We don't have the ability to bridge this chasm. That's Augustine. Let me tell you about a, a second guy. This guy's name is Pelagius, and he, he was a nice guy. Okay? He, he wasn't a, he's a person whose teachings are ultimately condemned, but he wasn't a person who was uh, just, just trying to live a, a disobedient lifestyle. He, he comes to Rome in 405, and as he's in Rome, he's from Britain, and he comes to Rome, and he hears a bishop in Rome reading from Augustine's Confessions. And as he hears that prayer, grant what you command, command what you want, he like audibly lets out a no. He's very disturbed by this teaching. He believes the, the second part, yeah, God can command whatever he wants, but he, he revolts against the idea that God has to give us the ability to be obedient. Pelagius believes that, that we aren't affected by Adam's fall in the sense that we don't have a, a sin nature. He believes that we're, we're more persuaded by example. And so Adam sins, we kind of look at Adam and then we look at sin and, and we choose to sin. Just not because we're sinful, but we just follow other bad examples. And he believes that we have the ability to choose to be obedient to God and, and to kind of earn our salvation, although he wouldn't use exactly that phrase. And so he, he uh, argues against what Augustine has taught, and he believes that we have the ability to turn toward God and then pursue God in and of ourselves. We have the ability to, to choose to do the things to do to bring us to God, to earn salvation. The church hears Pelagius' teaching, Pelagius and Augustine go back and forth, and ultimately the church rightly recognizes, no, this, this, what Pelagius is teaching is wrong. In fact, there's this, this heresy uh, called Pelagianism. How, how would you like a heresy named after yourself? So a thousand years your name is associated with a, a heretical teaching. But it was, it was wrong. This idea that we're not saved just by God's grace, but by, by earning our salvation, by turning and, and choosing to follow God, it was, it, was, it was a wrong teaching. So Pelagius and Pelagianism is condemned. And there's a third guy. It's a couple decades later. Uh, his name is John Cassian. And, and John Cassian says, okay, I get how Pelagius was wrong, but, but uh, this guy Cassian, he still wants to believe that there's, there's something that we do. And so he says, okay, maybe the, maybe the, maybe the chasm is, is too great for us to just you know, kind of come back and, and leap over by ourselves. But maybe what we do is this. Maybe we're kind of we're turned away from God, and then maybe what happens is this. We go, mm, I, think, I think I want to follow God. And then God says, oh, okay, uh, you are choosing to want to be in relationship with me. And because you, in and of yourself, choose to kind of turn toward me, I'm going to help you out. And so God comes, and, and, he, and God and you together, it's kind of called synergism, synergize together, you and God bridge that gap together. That's what Cassian teaches. The church and Christians who believe in what, what Scripture teaches says, no, 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 that, that's not right either. This idea 
that there's something in you that works to earn your salvation is contrary to teaching. So call it Pelagianism, call it what Cassian taught, which became known as semi-Pelagianism. Whatever it is, that, that's wrong. The biblical teaching, this is not just a Calvinist thing, it's Calvinists, Arminians, all Orthodox church teachers throughout history have said, no, 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 this, is, this salvation is not about us choosing God or, or us us working in our own strength, we're saved by God's grace alone. And so all types of this Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, this, this belief that we can, can, apart from God's grace alone, come into relationship with him and bridge that gap has always been rejected by the church. Or it should be. <laughs> You see, today, the contemporary evangelical church, the church struggles with this idea of of grace alone. The church struggles with this idea of grace alone. In the contemporary North American evangelical church, there is a, a latent belief that we don't need God's grace alone in order to be in relationship with him. And this affects so many aspects of the Christian life. It affects how we present the gospel to a person. So we, we present a, the gospel to a, a, the person we believe that we just kind of create the right circumstances, kind of say the right things, then th- this person can respond to the message in and of themselves. It affects what we believe about how a person continues in the, the, the relationship with God. It affects what we teach in a church. And in a church, is sometimes we have this belief that we don't need to use the means of grace that God has provided us, but instead we kind of can preach some, some moralistic sermons. We can say, okay, here's uh, three steps on how to handle your finances, or here's uh, two things to have a better marriage, or here's four things about how to be a better friend. And we kind of preach these, these moralistic messages because we have this belief, not that we're saved by God's grace alone, that we continue by God's grace alone, turning to Jesus and trusting in him, him, but that we can kind of make these moralistic decisions and follow after him. This semi-Pelagianism, this idea that we don't need God's grace alone to be saved, or we don't need God's grace alone to continue in the faith, we don't need God's grace alone to be, to be sanctified, it, it permeates our pulpits, it permeates the way that we live the Christian life. I was listening to a TED Talk, and I know that this is a very long introduction, but I, I hopefully... As we go through this long introduction, you'll, you'll see why this is important to understand. I was listening to a TED Talk recently, and it was uh, given by a, a woman named uh, Jennifer Lee. And she was talking about how she grew up in a conservative evangelical home uh, that also sold lots of Mary Kay products. And she said that she, uh, she embraced both of these, these paths in her, her family, the, the sell of Mary Kay beauty and cosmetic products and conservative evangelicalism. And she said it was very interesting as, as she reached her 20s and kind of continued into adulthood, how these two worlds were so similar. The Mary Kay people taught her how to approach people and how to convey the Mary Kay message in such a way that people would respond to it. So, for example, you're, you're talking to them about taking a product and you're shaking your head as you give them this product. At the same time, she was involved in a church plant, and this church plant was talking about how to, how to win people over and, and what words to use and, and how to, you know, the, the, one of the 
church plant pastors was talking about how they needed a, a mission statement that had five points so you could use each of your fingers when describing the points, and all the points needed to start with the same letter. Not that there's anything wrong with that, uh, but, but that was, you kind of do that. You kind of do that, and that wins people over. You can, you can kind of create this environment in which people will respond to Jesus. What is that? That's this belief that we're not saved by grace alone. We're not using the means that God has given us in his word, but we believe we can kind of manufacture conversion. She says the whole thing kind of came crashing down in her mentality when she was at a Target one time and saw a woman and says, hmm, does she need Mary Kay or Jesus? wasn't quite sure. What we see as we look at Scripture is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not some sort of thing that we in our human effort Wisdom can wield to force a person into conversion, to manufacture a situation in which a person is going to respond to it. But we see when a person is separated from God and comes into relationship with God, what that is is a miracle. And that miracle can be accomplished only by God's grace. And God uses the means of his grace, his word, the working of the Holy Spirit, his grace to draw a person into relationship with himself, and then as we come into relationship with God in Christ Jesus, we continue by God's grace. So here's what I want to do. I want to look here at Ephesians 2 for a little bit. And as we look at Ephesians 2, we look at sola gratia, grace alone, and we see that it's a love story. It's a love story. And then after we look at these 10 verses kind of quickly, I want us to talk about the application. What does it mean? What does it mean to receive God's grace? If it's true that I've been saved not by my own works, but by God's grace alone, what does that mean? How does that transform me? How do I look different because of that? That's what I want us to talk about after we look at these verses. So look at the text. Look down there at verse 1 of chapter 2 with me. What What does Paul say Well, first of all, he describes this state that we're in, the first three verses. He says, You are dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, what is Paul saying here? He's describing who we are, separate from God. So here's this, this chasm caused by sin, and we are over here, and where we are is not just a hospital, but it is a morgue. We are not simply sick people who need some sort of, of, of super special shot. We aren't just someone who needs some medical attention. We are we're dead. Because of sin, we are sinners. We're sinners both by our nature, and Romans 5 talks about how we're, we're in Adam, so because of Adam's sin, our, our nature, we're sinful, we're sinners by nature, our, our thoughts, our, our bodies, our emotions, our will, all the things that make us who we are are affected by sin. When we talk about total depravity, that's what we mean. We, we don't mean that we do every wicked thing that we could possibly do, but every aspect of who we are is somehow affected by sin. And if you think about it, you'll, you'll know that's true, right? 
Every aspect of who we are, our nature is affected by sin. We're sinners by nature, but we're also sinners by our choices. He says here, we, we once lived in the, the passions of our flesh. We, we desire something and we, we do it. We carry out the desires of the body and the mind. By our nature, we're children of wrath. And, and not only are we over here separate from God, but everyone else is as well. We're dead and the situation is what? Hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. As you look at yourself over here, this, this corpse, spiritually speaking, there's nothing in and of yourself that can compel you to bridge that gap between you and God. And not only is there nothing that could compel you, but even if you did have the slightest inclination of a desire to do so, you would be unable to do so because not only are we sinners by nature, but by our choices. Then we come to verse 4. And in verse 4, we come to the most important conjunction in all of Scripture, this contrasting conjunction, the word but. But God. But God, and then as Paul talks about the other side of the chasm where God is, he tells us two things about God. The first thing that he says here is, uh, but God, he says that God over here is, is rich in mercy. Mercy means his, his desire to, to help someone even against their deserving of his, his help. Now, you and I might think of ourselves as merciful. I sometimes think of myself as merciful. But, but my mercy is kind of like a, it's a shadow of God's mercy, right? If you compared my mercy to a body of water, my mercy would be like a puddle, right? There are times where if, I'm, if you catch me just in the right mood at the right exact moment in time, and you've done something wrong to me, I might be merciful, just, you know, if you, it has to be really the right time, though. And if you fall into my mercy, my puddle, you, you'll get a little damp, but not that wet. God here, it describes him as, as rich in mercy. You fall into the mercy of God, and it's like this, this never-ending ocean. There's, there's no moment at which you have, have exhausted the mercy of God. A person who falls into the mercy of God is, is completely and thoroughly drenched in mercy. It's an infinite amount of mercy that God has. There's every aspect of his being is affected by, by his mercy. The extent and breadth and depth of his mercy is literally immeasurable. But there's something else that we see about God here. Look at your text again. Not only is he rich in mercy, it says he's motivated by, by the great love with which he loved us. Same thing. This love that God has is vastly different in quality to my love. My love, my love, I, I strive to love like God loves, but there's a, a time where you will probably, if you're in relationship with me long enough, come to a moment where I do not love you as I ought to. You come to the, the terminus, the end of my love, at least for a period of time. But God's love is different. God's love is, is always a perfect love, a love that is, that is sacrificing of self for the eternal benefit of the other. God's love never has an end. There's no terminus to God's love. There's no moment in which the ones who receive his love ever reach the end of it. This last week, uh, we uh, went down to Texas for my, my high school reunion, and 
we were talking to people, and, and uh, you know, people in Texas, there's kind of this belief that if, if uh, you didn't travel within Texas, you traveled from a different state, you, you basically have, you, know, you could just as well have traveled from the moon. I mean, it's some remote foreign location. So we were from the remote foreign location of Illinois, this exotic locale. And every, I'm not kidding you, every single person that we talked to at my reunion, when they, they found out that we were from Illinois, they, they said, well, when did your flight get in? Like, it was beyond even the ability to comprehend that we would have driven a car from this far-off locale of Illinois. So, no, we, we, we drove in, brought our children. Oh, oh really? There's roads that lead all the way to, to Illinois. Totally foreign. Now, it is a long way. But if you, if you get in your car in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and, and you begin to travel toward Illinois, um, there'll, there'll be a point where you reach and, and it it feels longer the younger your children are. Um, there's, there's a point, or if the, if the iPad uh, breaks or something, um, th- then it feels really long. But there's some point at which you reach the halfway point. And, and then there's, there's a point at which you, you, you reach St. Louis and you, you go and suddenly you're in Illinois. And, and now you're, you're closer. And then you reach Tazewell County, and, and then you reach the, the light that you turn at, and then you see your house. There's a moment at which you, no matter how far away you were at the beginning of your journey, you reach the end. That's not how it is with, with God's love. You can begin to travel as you are in the midst of God's love, and there is no moment where you reach the halfway point. There's no moment where you reach a, a point of any discernible distance away from the end. You are always in God's love. His love is immeasurable just like his mercy. And that's why I call this idea of sola gratia, grace alone, a a love story. It's a love story. We're the recipients of the most beautiful love story ever conceived or written. And, And everything else in a love story, be it a rom-com, romantic comedy, be it a drama, a tragedy, I mean, all of the love stories, the, the things that resonate in our hearts are, are shadows of this ultimate love story. So many years ago, I, I told you the story, I'm going to tell you again. Uh, it's a story originally told by a, a guy named Ken Davis. I'm seven years uh, older than when I told the story for the first time. It resonates with me in different ways now. But uh, Ken talks about whenever his daughter entered her, her teen years, 13, 14, 15, 16, he, he noticed that she stopped saying, I love you. He'd see her, he'd say, I love you. And she'd say, me too. Me too. Broke his heart. One day he, he kind of confronted her in the kitchen about it. He said, you know, sweetheart, I, I love you, I love you, and it hurts me when you say me too. And she responded, whatever, and walked away. Years go by, a couple more years go by. He takes her to college, drives 800 miles away to college, and he helps her unload and pack up her dorm. And he hugs her as he gets ready to leave, and he says, I love you. She says, me too. And he drove back 800 miles, he says, weeping the whole way, wondering whether or not his daughter loved him. A couple months go by, and he has an invitation to speak at her college, and so he speaks at a chapel there, and 
uh, he goes out to, to lunch with the chaplain, and, and they're kind of talking about how his, his talk went. The chaplain's looking through some of the comment cards. He goes, oh, you'll, you'll probably want to see this card. And so he hands the card to Ken, and Ken picks up the card, and it's, it's his daughter's name written on the front of the card. And he, he says he just looks at it in fear because he says, you know, it's, it's bad enough to have a wound, but to do something that could potentially open the wound it's very hard to force yourself in, into that situation. So he looks at the card, wondering whether or not he should turn it over. He had just taken a, a big bite of spaghetti. He turns over the card and in big bubbly letters, his daughter has written, I love my daddy. Spaghetti goes all over the table. His, his eyes are, you know, he's blurry. He goes off to the restroom. He goes into a stall, locks the door, and begins just to, to sob. And he says, oh, God, she loves me. She loves me. And he says it's at that moment that he realized he wasn't alone in the stall. You know? what, is it, what is it that we love about that story it's this, this, this picture of, of, of love that pursues and pursues and pursues, and then there's response. It's a story of grace. And as wonderful as a dad, I'm sure, as, as Ken is, God's love far surpasses his. And, and look what happens next in the text, this, in, this, in this love story. It says in verse 5, reminding us, where, where are we? We're over here. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And it's not like Paul can't wait to get to the good part. He says, he kind of interrupts himself. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and he, and he raised, so here we are. And God, God comes over here. He, he makes us with Christ alive. God does this. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of what? Of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And he says, as he talks about how God has done this, it's what God has done. How, how can God do this? How can God save creatures like us? What can induce even a loving God to be merciful on those who do not wish his mercy? Verse 8, it's grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's, it's the gift of God. And what is the it there referring? It's referring to the, the whole process, the, the grace that we have, the faith that we have. Everything that we have is this gift of God. And then he says, this has to be so clearly understand, understood. Verse 9, it's not a result of works. This, this distance between God and ourselves that's, that's breached, we have to understand there's nothing in us that causes this to happen. Everything that we do in response to the gospel message is a gift of God. It's his grace alone. And this has to be the case that no one can boast. In other words, if I'm over here and I'm separated from God, there can be nothing in this process of me being reconciled to God that comes from me. Otherwise, I could boast. If I, if I was just a really good jumper and I could jump across that chasm, I could boast I'm a better jumper than the person who isn't saved. If it's just God's grace and me working together, I can boast. You know, I'm the one who responded to God's grace. God's grace and I, God's grace is given to everyone, but, but I'm the one who responded rightly, and, and I, you know, it's me. It's me. 
our salvation, here's, here's the important thing to realize here. The story of our salvation cannot be a story that magnifies you or me. The story of our salvation, this love story, cannot be a story that exalts me or exalts you. My salvation, your salvation, Augustine's salvation, every salvation story is a story that magnifies the glory of God and his grace. And so we have to reject, reject any understanding that would glorify you or me. He says, it's not a result of works that no one may boast, and we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, and these are, these are still part of this means of God's grace, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, let me get to some application here. Let's, let's, let's talk about the marks of grace. You say, Daniel, what is, it, what is Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism, who cares? What, is, what does all this mean? What, what is this what does this mean practically? And there's a book called Amazing Grace by Timothy George, and he talks about these, these five marks. This is stolen. This is just blatant stealing from his book here, mostly. And, and it's, it's very, very convicting things, very encouraging things for me. Here, here's some things that should be true of a heart that's been saved by God's grace. Number one, what should happen? Number one, we should have a grateful heart. If we rightly understand that we are saved not because of our own works, but that you and I are saved by, by God's grace alone, what should, what should be the effect? The effect should be that, that you and I have grateful hearts. And if you have a heart that is, is not a, a grateful heart, then you potentially have a heart that has not been touched by grace. If you have a heart that is, that is jealous, you say, you know what, um, I understand that, yeah, I have some good things, but, uh, you know, uh, there's some other people who are, who are getting things they don't deserve. And we look at other people and we say, you know what, um, my boss, I can't believe the, the, the good things that they have, or this, this coworker that I have, or my, my friend, or my enemy, I'm just, I'm so upset, I'm looking at other people, and I'm, I'm so discontent because I think about what other people have. That tells me that I have a heart that doesn't understand sola gratia. Grace alone. The person who's received grace is not just content but grateful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 says, Rejoice always. And then verse 18, Paul says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The person who has received God's grace is a person who says, I, Everything I have is from God, and nothing that I have is deserved. person is marked by grace has a grateful heart. Secondly, a person who's marked by grace has a, a humble countenance. There's humility. The person who, who's not understood grace is, is proud, right? There's a sense of, of pride as we consider our own ability. We think about the resources we have, and there's a sense of pride. Uh, we think about our family, our friends, what good dressers we are, and we, there's a sense of of pride. Or maybe we, again, with a lack of gratefulness, we think about the things that with our intellectual abilities or our work ethic or whatever it is, we think there are some other things that I, because I'm so great, I I do deserve that I I don't have. And that's a mark of a person who hasn't understood grace. 
the person who's received grace sees everything around him or herself as fruits of grace. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul's talking about those who judge others. And in in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, What do you have that you did not receive? And if if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Romans 11, as as Paul concludes this, this great passage on God's salvation, he says in verse 35, Who has given a a gift to God that he might be repaid? For from him, that's from God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If we are not people who have a humble countenance, we're people who haven't understood grace. The person who looks at their salvation and sees God's grace is, boy, this is not what I deserve. There's, there's humility, right? Nothing that I can point to that I did. No works of which I can boast. A third mark is a forgiving spirit. A forgiving spirit. If I'm a person who's been touched by grace, who's understood, understood this, this doctrine of sola gratia, that it's, it's grace alone, I have this forgiving spirit. Uh, Psalm 32, verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The, the person who, who reads Psalm 32 as a person who's received grace says, I, I'm blessed. My sin has been forgiven by God. My sin is covered. I'm blessed by God. God is not counting my iniquity. And the person who's been forgiven has an increased capacity to forgive others. And the person who does not have the ability to forgive others is a person who doesn't understand the forgiveness with which she or he has been forgiven. In fact, if you turn over to the book of Matthew... Matthew 18, how am I doing here? I'm doing great. Um, I say that in humility. By God's grace, we still have some time here. Matthew 18. It's very interesting. Um, The course of my ministry, I've been through, not personally when I was, well, uh, once when I was on staff at a church in Dallas, but uh, I've as an attender to church, I've been through uh, several church splits, church conflicts. And it's interesting, a lot of people come to, in, in the midst of a church conflict, you're going to hear Matthew 18 quoted again and again and again. Matthew 18, they'll, they'll begin in verse 15 and kind of go through um, verse 17, and it's like uh, the entire canon of Scripture gets boiled down to just a three verses in the midst of a church conflict, and they'll talk about, well, you didn't approach me, and it just, it's like the whole church turns into lawyers sometimes, and there's this spirit of, well, you should have confronted him with this verse, and then they should respond, and they didn't do step one, and so now we're going to go on step two, and it becomes this, it becomes this incredibly sad um, legalistic proceeding in a, in a lot of cases. Not saying that these are not important verses to consider in the midst of a church conflict, but, but my, my point is this. The passage continues, right? Matthew 18 doesn't begin, doesn't begin in verse 15 and doesn't end in verse 17. As you go on in Matthew 18, you come to the parable of the unforgiving spirit. 
uh, uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And the parable of the unforgiving servant, I think, helps us and informs us in how we approach confrontation, right? What happens in the parable of the unforgiving servant in the rest of the chapter? In fact, many more verses are spent on this parable than on just verses 15 through 17. It talks about this, this master that releases his servant from this great debt, a, a debt the servant can't pay. And, and the servant goes out and he finds in verse 28 a fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii. And he seizes him and he, he chokes him and says, pay what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. And you notice here, what the servant does with his fellow servant, I believe, is often the heart attitude that we approach people with in verses 15 through 17 of Matthew 18. There's this, this harsh, condemning, how can you not be what you're supposed to be? You owe me, give it to me. He refuses to have mercy. He refuses to have patience with his fellow servant in verse 29. And he puts him in prison. And his fellow servants see what has taken place, and it says in verse 31, they're greatly distressed. What is Jesus' point as he preaches this parable? That our attitudes towards one another need to reflect a, a gracious and forgiving spirit toward one another. In other words, as I approach a person who has sinned against me, and owes me something, I approach them not as a person who is righteous in and of myself, and it is time for this person who doesn't understand how wonderfully the Christian life can be lived like me, I approach them instead as a person who everything I have is because I've received it from God by grace, and my ability to stand before them as a forgiven person is not something in and of myself, it is something that God alone has granted to me. And if I do not have a forgiving spirit, I'm a person who doesn't understand the grace that I myself have received. As we become recipients of grace, we cannot help but be forgiving people in our relationships with one another. And if we do not have that, those types of relationships, we're forgiving, gracious people there's a very real possibility we haven't received God's grace ourselves. We certainly haven't understood it. Here's a fourth mark. The fourth mark is, is a life of love. If I've received God's grace, I've been transformed, my life is, is going to be a, a life of love. Whoever confesses, remember John, we talked about in, in, the, in the, the book of 1 John, we, we talked about love being a mark of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who have been transformed. John would say in 1 John 3, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should love one another. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. A person who's received God's grace, who understands that they've been saved by grace alone, lives a life of love. And then finally, a final mark is a passion 
for souls, a passion for souls. The person who's received God's grace, who's been transformed by the gospel, is going to be a person who's, who's passionate about seeing lost people, people who are dead in their trespasses and sin. They're going to have a, a passion to see those people transformed by the gospel, by God's grace, and brought into to relationship with him. And sometimes we're well-meaning in this, but misinformed. In other words, sometimes we have a great desire to see lost people brought into relationship with God, and yet we forget how we were brought into relationship with God. We forget that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and God has called us to use the same means by which he saves anyone, his word, the spirit working through his word. And so we get involved in some rather creative and, and yet ultimately ineffective means. God's called us to use the means that he's provided. And a person, a person who's been transformed by the gospel is going to be excited, excited about other people receiving God's grace. Think about the three parables in Luke 15, right? Remember there's the, the parable, first of all, of the, the, uh, the lost sheep. And there's this lost sheep, and then there's rejoicing when the sheep is found. And then there's a lost coin, and then there's rejoicing when the coin is found. And then the last parable that Jesus tells there in Luke 15 is the, the parable of the lost son, right? And what happens? There is a rejoicing on the part of the father when the son is found, but the older brother refuses to rejoice. What does that tell us? It tells us that the older brother has not really been in relationship with his father at all. If we are people who have been marked by grace, who, have, who understand, and understand, I mean that in the loosest sense of the word in some ways, right? who have begun to grasp the miracle that God in his grace has, has saved us, and it's, it's God's grace alone, not our works. If we are people who have begun to understand understood that miracle, what does that mean? It means that we are going to be people who want others to experience God's grace and salvation. Recently, I was in a doctor's office, and I kind of walked in, I saw an older gentleman who was trying to, to pay his, his bill. And the receptionist said, no, the doctor said it's, it's all, all taken care of. And the, the man struggled to understand this. He said, I, I, you know, what, what do you mean it's paid for? You know, what do you mean I don't have to pay? I always have to pay. No, no, the doctor said not, not to worry about it. And you could see that this, 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 this gentleman was was kind of profoundly confused by what was taking place. As it kind of began to, to dawn on him what the receptionist was saying, I, I saw him kind of reach, he, he still, he reached for his wallet, he pulled it out anyway, pulled out his wallet anyway, and said, well, and kind of shook a little bit, goes, I'm still going to see if I can figure out a way to get him some money. <laughs> it's so hard for us to understand Grace. There's something in us that recoils from the idea, and, and it's, I just can't, receive, I can't understand free. That, that, that doesn't make sense. But here's the message that we have to understand. We have been saved, not as a result of works, 
No one can boast. We've been saved by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, because our salvation is ultimately for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the the miracle of salvation. We pray that by your grace we would continue to walk in your love and your grace and your mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.